Hello and welcome to Working It Out, the Artsland podcast. The show where we ask, does art require an audience? My guest today is Kelly Jazvek. Jazvek lives and works in London, Ontario, a town just a couple hours outside of Toronto. She teaches undergraduate and graduate students at the University of Western Ontario. Her art practice uses a lot of found and salvaged materials to make work at the intersection of a critique of consumer culture, an engagement with feminism, and of course environmental concerns. Thanks for tuning in again to Working It Out. Join me now for the interview with Kelly Jazvek. Um, so we'll start this episode the way we start every episode, um, by asking Kelly, um, do you think that art requires an audience? Well, the, my answer as an artist is yes, but then of course there's lots of examples of artists who didn't need an audience. Like I'm thinking of someone like Henry Darger, which maybe has come up in this podcast before. No, but I've been so into him. <laughs> well, there's an example of someone who is working. Um, I mean, we don't we don't know, but I I would think ostensibly without the expectation of an audience, like it was something, um, or certainly how it's written, the work is written about, is that that was something for him personally, mm-hmm. for his private experience. Yeah, that makes sense to me because, I mean, if you say that art does require an audience, then to some extent. I mean, perhaps it isn't so black and white, but someone like him wouldn't be considered an artist, or what he was doing wouldn't be considered art if art does require an audience. Not until it did enter discourse. Right, and now it's in the collection of the MoMA and is certainly art. Yeah, and it just just as easily could have never done that. Right. So, yeah, I wonder um, if it would have counted <laughs> for artists. Right, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You'd have to ask an art historian, I guess. <laughs> the process of making art is a very like consuming, intellectually and physically consuming process. And so when I'm making it, I often forget there's an audience at the <laughs> other end. But when I'm conceiving it, I'm always very aware that there's an audience. Where, where do you think that audience enters your consideration of your work? Or does it? Uh, no, it definitely enters, and it depends on the project. Um, if I'm doing something that's more uh, public, like say it would be in public space as opposed to a gallery, I think of I approach the project really differently than I would uh, if I knew it was going to be in an artist-run center or a commercial gallery mm-hmm. um, or a museum in a downtown center versus a museum in a smaller town. Um, yeah, I think of all those things. So you did this project where you covered um, a car with vinyl. What was the initial car? Uh, it was a 1998 Pontiac Sunfire, which uh, when I was a teenager, a friend had a version of, and it uh, it struck me as a kind of car that looked faster than it actually was. Like it kind of had the lines of a Porsche, but didn't. Uh, move is obviously as fast as a Porsche is supposed to, not that I've ever even really traveled in one, but it, it had this formal similarity to a Porsche, and so by giving it a new skin uh, or a new surface, it was it was relatively easy to make it look from a decent distance that, as though it was a Porsche. Yeah, so it was a Porsche that it ended up looking like. Anyway, that would be an example of something that's very much intended for like a 
perhaps a broader public. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what would be the difference between that and something for, like, uh, say, an artist run center? Uh, well, I would assume that um, my audience is different in an artist run center, that people uh, would have some knowledge and interest of art walking in the door in an artist run center. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's just like having a conversation, depending on who you're, you're speaking with, mm -hmm. uh, you change how you present your ideas. Um, I, for example, I was at the Smithsonian last week uh, with, I, I'm part of this larger research team that is looking at plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. And I went there with a geologist and Kelly Wood, a photographer, and we met Heather Davis there, who's a philosopher. Uh, and has just released this amazing book called Art and the Anthropocene, which I'm just starting to read. And uh, Patricia Corcoran, the geologist that I've been collaborating with, and I gave a talk, and it was to a room full of paleobiologists, paleobiolo which is the first time I've ever um, given a talk where the room was only scientists. Uh, so obviously, I spoke very differently than I would to uh, a room of MFA students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess there are just like certain assumptions that go along with um, certain audiences. Right, but I like that too. Like I, I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Um, when speaking, when trying to have a conversation with a scientist, we both have to, uh, we both use words that seem like normal words, and yet to the other person, they're not at all. And so we have to stop and define them. And in the process of doing that, really uh, reconsider what we actually mean by those words that we use every day. Yeah. I feel like the, I think that those plastiglomerates, which mm -hmm. is this new substance that you co-discovered, can you explain to me what that's made from again? Don't Do worry. you want the whole story? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah? Okay. Let's get the whole story about the plastiglomerates. <laughs> the whole story. <laughs> um, so uh, I saw a poster for a talk at Western by an oceanographer named Charles Moore, and he is a pollution, a plastic pollution activist um, and also a sea captain, and so he sails his boat through the oceans of the world looking for evidence of the impact plastic pollution has had on oceans. Um, and so he, was, he came to speak at Western and I was uh, really fascinated by what he was talking about. And he ended his talk with this image of a new substance he had identified on a beach in Hawaii called Camilo Beach. And he didn't know what it was, um, but it looked, like, uh, it looked like plastic that had been melted by lava. So it was really quite dramatic looking and like kind of moon crater-like, uh, but also uh, made of plastic. And uh, he said that he'd really like a geologist to go there to, to sample it and figure out what this was and how it was being made. And so after he spoke, I got in touch with the person who had invited him to come. And in fact, she was a geologist, Patricia Corcoran, um, and suggested that uh, because of our mutual interest in plastic pollution, that if she ever wanted to collaborate, I'd be interested. And she said, well, actually, I'd really love to go to Hawaii and check out this weird substance, but I need, uh, I need someone to come with me to do the field work because she didn't have funding to go. And uh, in her department, you're not allowed to go and do field work by yourself. You need uh, someone with you. So if I were to fund myself, I could come, which I would happily, happily did to go to Hawaii. Um, and when we got there, uh, so this beach on Camilo Beach um, for a while had the moniker uh, the dirtiest beach in the world and it was getting so much um, plastic pollution that was washing up through ocean currents that it was like over a meter thick in places and local volunteers were 
working tirelessly to remove literally tons of plastic waste from this beach. Uh, so you can imagine the kind of impact it would have. Yeah. Uh, in any case, we went to this beach, which is not easy to get to. Uh, we had to take a 4x4 Jeep and you're driving over uh, lava rock, which is quite uh, like bumpy and sharp. Uh, and we indeed found this unusual substance, but it did not look to us like it was formed by lava at all. Um, kind of major clue number one was that no lava flows had erupted in that area for 30 years. Clue number two was speaking with the locals who were very adamant that um, people, like this is a beach that locals use and come and camp at, and it's also so polluted that if you were to have a campfire, you couldn't help but melt any plastic. Like, uh, if, you, if you ran your hand through the sand and scooped up a fistful of sand, you'd mostly have plastic in your hand. Like it's, God. yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's re- it was really intense, actually. Everything you see on the internet, like the, the birds that are dead with the plastic in their stomachs and the, yeah. like, you know, it's just, that was, it was all there. Wow. Um, so a really intense trip. Um, but an interesting one in terms of an interdisciplinary conversation, because you know, kind of our first reaction is like, oh, well, that's a lot less interesting than the lava melting. Like, that's so dramatic, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the red hot lava. But through our conversation, and, it, and I, I really think this was kind of the nice moment of an interdisciplinary conversation, because in the art world, the Anthropocene was, is, was everywhere. There are curated shows internationally. It's, it's kind of a, a buzzword mm-hmm. right now that people are using to describe how humans impact the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in speaking to a geologist, it was really interesting because she said, oh, well, that's actually uh, contentious among geologists mm-hmm. if we've actually entered that uh, geologic epoch or not. Yeah. Um, and so through that conversation, um, I suggested if this could actually be, this substance could potentially be evidence of the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. uh, which Patricia, the geologist, said, well, yes, if it if we can prove that it enters the rock record, in which case it has to have the potential to be buried. Yeah. So we started digging on the beach and combing the top. And sure enough, there was a buried plastic glomerate back at the back of the beach. Yeah. So what is the plastic glomerate then? That's just plastic? It is... Um, is there sand in yeah, it? Yeah, I should have explained that right first. It's, oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> it is... Um, it's, it's quite hard, but it's melted plastic that is acting like the glue to, glo- to glue natural materials together. So mm-hmm. there is uh, like sand, volcanic rock, coral, mm-hmm. wood, uh, other stones and things on the beach. And so that um, those other rocks have a greater dentist, uh, density than the plastic. And so that's what's giving it, uh, that we argue in, our, in the paper we wrote from it, that is giving it the potential to enter the rock record. Yeah. It's fascinating and horrifying uh, yeah. all at the same time. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know, with this work, um, just to bring it back to audience, um, mm-hmm. yeah, audience would be would become very important very quickly. Yes. Um, exactly. Uh, audience is uh, implicated in it, um, and then I think also just in terms of how it circulates. This idea circulated has been a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, it got picked up by a lot of press, but not in an art interdisciplinary way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
why we got invited to come speak at the Smithsonian was because they were interested in plastic glomerate, but they were also curious as to why this scientific manuscript had this kind of speculative uh, component to it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which certainly um, is part of the interdisciplinary conversation mm-hmm. of what this could mean culturally. I, I would hope it's the beginning of some kind of profound understanding of like you know human impact on the environment like just seeing <laughs> seeing plastic enter the geological record through this plastic glomerate substance is really disturbing and really profound i think and so yeah i think it definitely has a place in culture like as much as it's important to these geologists for this distinction um i would hope that it can serve some kind of purpose in, in terms of um, creating awareness or more than that, policy or change, real change. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, yeah, this is interesting because it very quickly kind of moves to talking about like the environmental movement and how those, how those work, like the mechanics of them. So, you know, there's been various environmental movements throughout history um, and the one in the 90s was one that I loved when I was a kid, but um, it got very quickly undermined by uh, turning things around on the consumer. So sort of saying like, mm. oh, it's just your consumer choices. Turn off the tap when you're done brushing your teeth, blah, blah, blah. And like all those things do matter, but they aren't solving. They aren't like taking the plastic out of the rocks, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And if, uh, if we look at charts of uh, you know, consumer versus industry, and of course, one could argue, well, if consumers are buying it, then industry is producing it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, you know, those curing coffee cups are a clear example. Like the beach was littered with them. Oh God! Uh, and you know, the the person who invented them now is having regret at inventing that thing. They're just very wasteful. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about your new show. So with that show, you had um, a material you often work with, which is vinyl cuts from science. Mm -hmm. Um, So with these ones, were they something you had cut or was it again something that you found? Yeah, there's another some found bits over there. Yeah. yeah, they're they're found. There's a few things that are made in the show, mm-hmm. but you couldn't necessarily tell. Like there's kind of a blurring between uh, what is found and what is carefully made. Um, whereas the the metal casts on the wall are made uh, well cast and kind of carefully sanded. Whereas um, the culture uh, sign, so there's a large sign that's about twelve feet tall uh, in one corner, and it reads Culture Salon Spa. And it is a salvage sign from just around the corner from here for a hair salon yeah. uh, that was in the dumpster. And you took it out of the dumpster. And I took it out of the dumpster, yeah. cleaned it up, and uh, was really quite taken with it as a symbol of um, what culture could be or mean or mm-hmm. consume, how it is consumed or marketed. I mean, speaking of audience. Yeah. So uh, when you say that, do you mean that the fact that it went in the garbage and you were able to appropriate it? Or what, what's the part where... It becomes a symbol. I, I think that th- to have the word spa and salon, and salon, of course, is an art word also, but yeah. um, more popularly known as um, a place to go relax and get beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, that that could be coupled with the word culture kind of seamlessly. 
I think is really interesting. I mean, it speaks more to like a kind of soothing and, and um, self-amelioration in this aesthetic way as opposed to uh, a more profound cultural mm -hmm. experience. So yeah, culture as consumable in this like really specific way. Um, you know, of course, it, I mean, putting it in the gallery is also interesting. Um, but kind of, if, if culture is just this thing you can just go buy and experience, then um, yeah, it sort of maybe diminishes an, a real engagement with culture or spa experiences are meant to take you away from like whatever your circumstances are. Right, exactly. And so culture as an escape is something that that speaks to. Right. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, culture can is so much more than that. Um, but it it's funny how it's kind of co-opted into like consumer culture. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a lot of, of conversation in museums and big kind of art events that are more spectacular, for, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, as opposed to critical. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's been lots of conversations and pressure on museums to get people in the door. And so uh, to do that, you know, what kind of artworks, what kind of experiences do you want them to yeah. have? Yeah, it becomes about selling an experience. Mm -hmm. I wonder about that. Um, with big public museums and stuff, uh, they often have a lot of private donations, but they also get public money. And I wonder if there's a sense of uh, when publicly funded needing, needing to be accountable to the public. In Canada, we've got the Canada Council, and you know they do this wonderful thing where they, they give out creation grants, which means you can make something and there's not, um, that isn't tied to a specific exhibition. You can just make the work and you get the freedom to do that. Something I think about with that kind of money is like, if it's coming from the public, should I be thinking about that public with the, the kind of work that I make? Yeah, to me there's a bit of a tension there between like, yeah, I guess I just wonder about that in this country, like how that changes the dynamic of making work. If we've got like pretty decent access to public funding. Right. No, yeah, I, I wonder about that question too. And, and um, having spent time in other countries that don't necessarily have that funding, um, like say somewhere like England or the States where uh, there does appear to be more commercial pressure mm -hmm. for young artists where it's almost like a different, a different approach for, mm -hmm. or at least for, in my experience. And I was just in Norway, which has a similar funding structure to Canada. And it seems, uh, it seems similar in a lot of ways. Um, but then there's also that, that important component of trusting the experts with whom you give money to. Yeah, like rather than saying like, hey scientists, is the public gonna get this? Cause like that work is yeah, important. Exactly, and, yeah. um, and, of, and of course there will be so much important science that I will never grasp, but I have to trust that um, it will further society in some way. Yeah. Um, part of the show that's currently at uh, Diaz Contemporary in Toronto, the one with the culture sign, also has a lithograph of a newspaper poll. Uh, and it's from uh, the Sun Media, which is a, a pretty like, right-wing, every, every man kind of paper. Um, and it, the poll uh, asks about global warming and the headline says what you said, dot, dot, dot. And then it gives you some facts about uh, new research in the UK basically says global warming isn't happening. And then, it's, then it says, ask its readers, is global warming happening? And then of course, 91% of the 
the readers say, no, it's not. Um, because they've just read this right. article or, or this little clip <laughs> this sentence, yeah. about the research says it's not. So right, it's, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And then so here's this like... Some really great journalistic integrity there. Yeah, but that, <laughs> and at a moment where um, the experts... It's assumed we don't need the experts. Like, don't worry, guys, we did a poll. The, and then there, it's held onto uh, the wall with these security tag. Um, they're cast? They're, yeah, they're cast. They're from a clothing store, like the kind of security tag that would be on a t-shirt or something. Yeah. Um, and they are cast, uh, one in gold and one in silver, and then kind of hammered into the wall like a thumbtack. So uh, it attaches the... The pole. The the perplexing pole to the wall. <laughs> but with those security tags, I was thinking a lot about uh, simply like security and architecture. And I wanted something that could be attached into the physical space mm-hmm. uh, as if that uh, was being monitored. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see. The security element is what comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then whose space is that? Whose land is that? Yeah. Uh, and how is it acquired? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, the uh, Papa Patriot sign that oh, was yeah, in yeah. the show, um, there was, I wanted to ask you about it because there's a few things going on with that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's this found vinyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the background also found? Uh, it's like, it looks like trees. Yes, tree that, yes that was salvaged um, from the local museum. Okay. Uh, and then collage, the two signs collage together and then sewn repeatedly yeah. uh, to attach them. So it's actually five different signs all uh, merged into one one big banner. It's fun to kind of start pulling that apart though. So you've got these, these salvaged vinyl. Mm-hmm. I suppose, I mean, first of all, the vinyl thing, um, we should probably mention like this is something that you're able to get because it gets used and people discard it or they make mistakes and discard it or what have you. So you salvage it and that's part of your practice is working, mm-hmm. working with this vinyl. Um, but the sewing was really interesting. I mean, it's, it's this, yeah, like beautiful neon thread. Uh, and then they have little, um, what's the word? It's almost, they almost look like tassels from a carpet hanging off of it. Right, because yeah, I didn't trim... Uh trim the threads yeah so it makes this kind of but they're this marvelous grid as well which is sort of like agnes martini kind mm-hmm. of drawing which i don't know i mean um like things to read into it that are like ready-made but then but then it's worked what do you think happens when you work a ready-made uh i like that question i mean i think that's a really important question for the show because there's some things that are barely worked and then there's other things that are really belabored like that sign mm-hmm. My intention with the sewing it was in, repeatedly, so there's horizontal and vertical lines of sewing across a 14-foot-long, 4-foot-high banner, um, was to, to visually disrupt it slightly. So the the signs all attached together reads "Pop up a patriots," uh, up right side up and then upside down, kind of like this this loop and. Um, I liked that interruption of the word, and it, it happened by accident. I, I dropped the sign that I had just, I had this hall I had recently acquired from a sign shop, and it kind of splayed out on the ground and, and read Pop Up a Patriots. And um, I liked that um, kind of assertion of the slowing down of the word. Like it, it made it strange in a way that allowed me to think about the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that working it. Um, 
putting this other this further interruption but this one a more subtle one like you have to be up close to it but then it, it actually becomes quite hard to see with the, the like an Agnes Martin when you try and yeah. actually look at it yeah uh, even though it's so quiet it resists your eyes <laughs> it becomes like screen there is this uh, spoiler is it from a sunfire it's it's from the Porsche it's uh, from that yeah. one yeah <laughs> yeah exactly I thought it looked like a sunfire thing uh, but it also looks like a moon, which is quite beautiful, <laughs> shiny black moon. Um, yeah, it was a piece uh, that I had to take off. When I transformed the Sunfire into a current model of Porsche, I had to remove the spoiler from the back because it was the one thing that was giving it away as not a Porsche. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I just hung on to it for a while. And it, it does look like a moon when it's standing up on its end. Uh, and so for the show, I gave it kind of like a picture frame stand at the back. So mm -hmm. when you walk into the show, you see it as a moon uh, and you see that next to uh, the sign Pup -Pup Patriots, which also has this salvaged uh, silhouette of a woods at night mm -hmm. uh, in, built into the sign. But then as you walk around, you see that the, the moon is actually the spoiler and the, the brake light connectors there and the little wires and things are sticking out. And, um, it spoils it. It spoils it. <laughs> okay, uh, well thanks so much Kat. This is really delightful. Great.